Um, this is the last of the mini-series, the Rebirth mini-series that was, we created to lead into this uh, Easter moment. And something, this is Palm Sunday weekend, and I, I must be even more forthright and say that I have a particular uh, kind of uh, agenda here. One of my desires is to teach a portion of scripture that just reminds us of the extent of what Jesus did for us and, and what happened after he was taken down from the cross. So I want us to understand what happens. The other part of it is that I want us to be motivated, hopefully prepared to embrace this week in a way that we may not have if we hadn't come. So there's a, a teaching component and there's an embracing practical component that I'd like us to, to consider. So this idea of, of, of learning and listening to what the Lord might want to speak to us about. Nicodemus has been our focus point on this little rebirth. We've been tracing his journey of faith, how he went from an unconvinced kind of intrigued agnostic to someone who ended up uh, committing himself really as a follower of Jesus. Now, when that happened, we don't know. We know that he starts his first meeting with Jesus in, that we, we talked about in depth that was recorded in John 3, where it says he came secretly in the night. Of course, it's in the course of that conversation that he, who was a very, he was much older than Jesus, Nicodemus. He was, as we talked about, a member of the most prestigious council in Jerusalem at the time, kind of like their version of a Supreme Court. He was powerful, he was rich, he was well-trained, he was learned in the law, and he was much older than Jesus. And yet he was compelled by the teachings of the Lord. And he, he wanted to make a, an arrangement to hear more directly from him. And when he did that, uh, we know that he didn't want the rest of his peers to know. He was kind of covert in his interest. And so he secretly met with Jesus. They had that discussion in the, in the, in the night around the flickering lights as he made his way through the dark streets of Jerusalem. And in the course of that conversation, his heart was moved deeply. He talked to the Lord about what it meant, to who he was, and what that really meant. And Jesus exchanged with him this idea of being born again, made anew, made alive. It was the best way he could capture the essence of what it means to have your eyes opened up to the things that God was doing. He talked about who he, Jesus talked about who he was, what he had come to do. It was special. It was powerful. Whether or not after that conversation, Nicodemus immediately gave his life to Jesus, we don't know. What we do know is somewhere along the way, between then and what we're looking at now, something happened and he made a decision that he actually believed. And he, he loved Jesus, and we're gonna see that. Now I think the, probably the best way for us to, to do this is to pick up with Jesus and some of his final words on the cross. I'd like to point out a couple of things, get us to consider them. In John 19, and we'll just put this up, there's an interesting portion of scripture that sort of captures what Jesus said. And I think it's worth looking at it because it says something about the way he dies. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill the scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. So whenever the Bible says to fulfill the scripture, it's both talking about a literal reality, because he was absolutely thirsty. He was, he was parched. He was dying. He was thirsty. But he also was connecting it to a prophetic utterance. So there was a component of prophecy connected to Jesus' declaration of his condition physically. And it says that a jar of sour wine was sitting there, and so they soaked the sponge, and the soldiers did, and they put it on a hyssop branch. Now, hyssop is a herb from the mint family. It, if, if, most likely, they had stripped it down of its leaves, bundled some together, and used it as kind of a pole to put a sponge on to sort of give him a little bit something to numb the pain, or at least to be able to give him something for his absolute thirst as he was dying. 
They held it to his lips. When Jesus tasted it, that's when he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head. Look at that. And he released his spirit. The way the Bible pictures it, I don't know if you can see it, but one thing, Jesus is very aware of his mission. And two, it's also, there's this kind of suffering, there's a kind of majesty even in his suffering. Almost, almost like the way the Bible is suggesting is that he, he is he's completing an assignment. And he's not just a victim. He, he has been victimized, but he's clearly more than a victim. He is one, and yet he isn't, because he's moving according to a plan. And even the, the way it's phrased, he releases, he gives up his spirit. It's almost as if he's asserting himself even in his moment of death, and he was. Now, you look at that little piece there about the hyssop. This is oftentimes not appreciated. It actually has significance. If you were to go back into the history of Israel, back to the time centuries before when a very defining moment happened for them as a people. See, God had always said that he would, from the descendants of Abraham, he would bring forth a nation, and out of that nation would come a Messiah, a Savior for this world, Jew and Gentile alike. But the children of Israel, as they are called, as some of us know, most of us know, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, you know for sure what happened. They got enslaved, and they were in bondage for, I guess, a number of years, say 400 and in those years, they had, they had tasted the bitter, bitterness of being not just oppressed, but abused as a people. And they cried out to God for a deliverer, and none came. Finally, the Lord raised up a man, a deliverer, to lead them out of their slavery. He is a foreshadow of Jesus, Moses, the deliverer. And Moses ended up having this confrontation at a much older stage in his own life with Pharaoh. Some of us may recall that Pharaoh who said, I'm not letting these people go. This is their key to our economy. And they had this confrontation. And by the time it was done, there was a final, there were certain things that God would do through Moses that the, as the plagues came, that Pharaoh's legs would buckle. But finally at the end, he broke. He broke over something that happened when God sent what he called a death angel through the land and firstborn were killed, literally died. But he told Israel to do something. So he gave Moses a word. He says, what I need you to do is I need you to do something that has huge, by the way, it will have huge significance for what we just looked at. He says, what I need you to do is I need you to, before the night comes, I need you to, to take the blood of a lamb or a goat, a young goat. I need you to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and then stay inside. And death will pass you by as the blood covers your doorway. Now, here's, the, here's what he literally said. I want us to look at that. It, what, this is what Moses called out. Now, see if you can see the connection to the cross. Moses called all the elders of Israel together, said to them, go pick out a lamb or a young goat, each of your families, and slaughter it for the Passover. Drain the blood into a basin. Look at this. And then take a bundle of, there it is, hyssop. Hyssop branches and dip it in the blood and kind of use it like a paintbrush. And then let it save you from death. As the, as the lamb is slain and the blood is applied over the door, the death will pass you by. In this final moment, as Jesus is becoming the ultimate lamb, when John saw him, when he begins his ministry, it doesn't, the first words said about him were not, there he is, the king of all eternity. There he is, son of God. No, the first word that was said by John the Baptist, who welcomes him in, starts his ministry off was, behold, there he is, the lamb of God the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Already at the outset, 
It was a reminder that Jesus was going to become the ultimate Passover lamb, setting us free. A redemption, an utter freedom would come through his own death that brings us life. The hyssop connection is amazing, actually. The same way that blood was applied, Jesus is giving his lifeblood. He is saying, it is finished. That what had to be done, God has, what we could never do for ourselves, God has done for us. That's, what it, that's really the essence of it. He pays the debt that we could never pay so that we might receive a gift that we could never earn. It's the gift of God. It's what we celebrate. Now, let's pick back up here. Look at John 19. I, this, and you can follow along in your Bible or in the handout. I put the portion, we put the portion of Scripture there. Follow along. I'm going to try to move through this. I want us to learn what happens after Jesus dies. At least we look at it. It says, when Jesus had tasted it, there it is again. He, he said it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Again, this idea of releasing it. And it was the day of preparation. Now, okay, the day of preparation, what that means, it was the day that they were preparing for the, the Sabbath. And uh, the Jewish leaders didn't want the body. So that would have been a Friday. So we, Jesus dies on a Friday. We call it Good Friday because he died for us. But the day, they only had, according to the teaching of the law and the, the custom of the Jews in the Sabbath, they only had till sundown uh, Friday. No work could be done after that. From sundown Friday to, to Saturday sundown. So you had this one day Sabbath that was honored and set aside. So it was very important. This is going to color what happens. Look at it. It says that, that it was the day of preparation. So it was Friday, the daytime. And the evening was approaching. And the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day because that would have been a violation of source. And besides, we're told here, it wasn't just any Sabbath. Notice, there's the connection back to what we just read in Exodus there. It was a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. And so, they, again, connecting all the way back to the first Passover when the lamb was slain and death passes by. So they asked Pilate, the Roman governor, to hasten their deaths. What they asked him was, you know what, we, we don't want our laws violated. Now look how meticulous they were about the keeping of the law, and yet what an obvious exception. And it just reminds you that you can, you can be so detailed and miss the larger piece, right? You can miss the larger, the larger issue. Here they were, the fact that Jesus had done nothing and was so physically violated and killed, that meant that was nothing. What was more important was getting his body off before Sabbath. That was the bigger issue. <laughs> That's ironic. It's a testimony to human nature at its lowest point. Look at this. So it says, then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men because what they needed is they asked Pilate if, they, if he could order their deaths uh, by ordering their legs to be broken, if they could hasten it. The, okay, this might get a little graphic, but the point, the cross was graphic. It was it was real, and it was violent, and it was awful. It was awful. Rome set it up, and I, 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 there's a little quote in there that tells you a little bit about it. The way that Rome typically would do it is they wanted, their, they wanted their criminals to linger. They wanted them to die, not fast, but slow. In fact, one of the things that, that we, is mentioned here in this uh, particular quote, it says, it took days for him to die. He might hang for days in the heat of midday, this, the victim, Sun and cold of night, tortured by thirst and tortured by gnats, and the flies crawling in the wheels, the stripes or the ridges of, the, of their torn back. So, this phrase caught me. Often men died raving mad on their crosses. They were just utterly in pain and in agony and, and just allowed to just suffer. So when the Jewish leaders 
and Jerusalem leaders, of whom Nicodemus and the, another man that we're going to see were a part of that group. They were their peers. When, when the leaders said, let's just have their bones broken, and initially it looks like it's harsh, but in a warped kind of way, they were trying to hasten their death, albeit not out of compassion, but because they didn't want to violate the Sabbath. But, so they were hoping that if they weren't dead already, they needed their legs broken, because when a person was crucified, the legs were what needed to, be, to hold them up enough to breathe. You couldn't breathe. So every time Jesus utters a word, it's, it's costing him something. And the, and the blood is already drying on the back that has been shredded. I mean, it's just, I mean, God's humility is stunning. And so it says here that they asked for their bodies could be taken down. The soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But then when they came to Jesus, look at this verse. It says that they saw that in verse 33, he was already dead. So they didn't even bother to break the legs. And then just to double check it, one of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and his, the liquid that had been building up, blood and water flowed out of him. But now what? What do we do with the body of Jesus? Who's going to come for it? Who has even access to it? Who has access to power to even ask for it? What are they going to do? Just going to be buried with the rest of the, of the criminals in some nondescript place? At least spared the plight of those that the Romans typically just threw to the dogs or wild beasts to devour in the night. But we see that two men emerge, one of whom we've been talking about. What's interesting is what he was afraid to do, he finally does. He comes out of the shadows, as it were. And these two men decide that they need to do something to at least honor Jesus. Maybe, look at this. It says, afterwards, look at, look at verse 38. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the leaders. And they were his friends, his peers, his associates. They asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. And they took the body away, and after Pilate gave them permission to do so, and Joseph did it. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. See, but what were, you know what we see here? Both of these men had actually f believed in Jesus, followed him, but they were secret in their faith. They never wanted others to know that they were followers. This is like they were ashamed, scared. We talked about this, what it might cost them. Some of us can relate to that, maybe, in some smaller way. Maybe we're in a climate where it's not that easy to, to represent how we actually feel about Jesus. Maybe we fear it could cost us something, reluctant to share, perhaps. I know that's not the case with many of us, but it can be with some of us. Some of us might be able to relate to Nicodemus and Joseph, who's the culture of the people that they were closely to. They were their friends. Their families grew up together. They went to the same schools together. They shared the same interests, the love for the law. They were, they were people who, whose lives were deeply intertwined, and yet they had a division because so many of them had rejected Jesus, even to the point where they were willing to sign off on his unjust death. But Joseph and, and Nicodemus had actually believed in Jesus. And so they felt that if there was nothing else they could do, if they had refused to speak up when he was alive, at least now, they would do something to at least honor him in his death as tragic as it was. And look at what we're told. They asked for Pilate to give them permission. And with him comes Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus. And, they, and it says that he brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment. This was what was used. Just the ointment alone was 75 pounds, just for the, like a rapid embalming to take place with linen cloths and a quick way of cleaning him, honoring him, 
and, and with as much time as they possibly could because look what it says here, the day of preparation was coming and was nearing the Passover and the tomb they had, Joseph of Arimathea had, was in a garden that was very close. It was probably a tomb that he was gonna use for himself, but he decided to give it to Jesus to honor him. And so they rapidly took the body, carried it, and they carried it with tenderness. I tried it in my mind's eye, think about that moment. I tried it in my mind's eye, because remember, it's, here they are. They're the ones now that have the dead body of Jesus. And that body, it doesn't look like anything that they would have recognized. I mean, it's covered with dried blood. It's bloated a little bit. It's certainly swollen from the beatings. Uh, in some ways, I imagine Nicodemus, and that's what the Bible says. They were the ones that cleaned him. He's the one cleaning him. The old man who remembered walking in the streets to meet the one whose body was now here. There is nothing in it anymore. A tragedy. Maybe there was a tear started coming down the old man's eye, splashing on the body as he tried with as much care as he could to clean him and to prepare him and to rapidly, tenderly, with singular devotion, at least give him something of honor for the man did not deserve this. We had believed in you. That moment, if you think about it, they didn't have to do that. Other, other people would have rationalized, why bother? Why, why do this now? I mean, come on. Okay, clearly, whoever Jesus was, he wasn't who he said he was. As bad as that as it is, and it's tragic, at least you know he's not who he said he is. Is it really worth doing this right now? But something in them felt compelled to honor Jesus, even though at this point they had nothing to gain. Lesser men would have backed away and said, you know what? The pragmatic thing to do is just let this thing be. It's sad, but you know what? We wash our hands of it. The practical thing would have been to walk away, but they, they felt like they had to do something to honor him. And perhaps they felt a little ashamed that he had never spoken up, but they would now. And there's, okay, that's the teaching. Now let's apply it. Because remember, part of what we're doing here is getting ourselves ready for this week that's coming. Here's something I want us to think about. And I'll just put this up. We'll call this the, the thought number one, just to apply it. And I think you can see it when we, when we put it up. Is that sometimes loss, even tragic loss, has a way of pulling good things out of us that would have otherwise remained dormant. Uh, in a strange way, the death of Jesus motivated them to do for him what they never did when he was alive. It motivated them to push past their fear and to take a stand. And I think there are some times when some types of adversity in our life, some, type, some, some seasons of pain, some seasons of disappointment or loss, or when we're forced to deal with limitation, which is a whole nother story, or when things die that we have loved or we used to love, it could be dreams. They can be relationships. They can be things that die inside of us. Those places that are hard, one of the things we're being taught here is it can be, I know this, it can be a blessing in disguise. I know it. Look, not because of what it is, but because of what it releases. 
The cross was awful. And anybody who, the irony, don't you think about it? People wear a cross, that's actually, it's like, you know what that was in their day? That would be like a, an electric chair. <laughs> Wearing a symbol of death. The only reason it has meaning now is because it wasn't just death that was the final word over Jesus. It has come to represent not only the love of God, but the path across of life, the cross, the bridge to life. That, otherwise, that, that just means absolute tragedy. And, and I look at this and I'm reminded again that, that, that God, a lot of times what God will do is he'll use things in our lives. I think when we allow him in to our situations, to our bad chapters, to our tears and into our agony, into our, into our loss, into our horror, whatever it is, and we let his light shine upon it. You know, something awakens, something grows. Listen, I believe this with all my heart. Life can flow from a cross. Life can flow out of death. I would even say it now. Are there some areas in our lives where we feel the struggle of life and death? Lord, we welcome. We welcome. I pray your resurrection power over all of us. The resurrection power of the life of God, may it come into the darkest places of our heart. May it come into our deepest wounds. Lord, we welcome your life power even now to come into our lives. You whom death could not hold, do not let things of death grip our hearts. We welcome your resurrection power in us. Part of what we're doing is saying we are open. The death is not the final word. Where, what is it? Where is the place where the shadow and the lie prevails and the hopelessness is? Where is that place? Let the power of the living Jesus come and welcome it in. It may not come all the way right away the way we think it will, but it will come. Ours is a way of hope, not a way of death as the end, but a way of life. It always has been because of Jesus. It always will be. Nothing need bind us down. Here's the other thing to recognize. Notice what they did. I think it's a small point, but it's a meaningful one. It actually has huge implications. For anybody who wants to sincerely follow Jesus, this has huge implications. Notice, they came together as friends. They expressed their courage and their devotion together as friends. What they could not do alone by themselves, together they pulled their courage and stepped out. There is something about that dynamic. The Bible says two is better than one, a threefold cord uneasily broken. When Jesus sends out the disciples, he sends them out, not by themselves, by two at least. Not alone. There are some things in this Christian life, in this life of following the Lord, that, look, life period is going to throw stuff at us. When it comes to following Jesus and really making real gains in our lives at a deep level, fighting through things, because you know, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in a toxic culture. It's a great time to be alive. It's a dangerous time to be alive. Not necessarily always physically in our, play, in our land, but so many things emotionally. And there's so many, it's so easy to fall into addictions and to be bound by stuff constantly. Always things yelling at us, calling us, wooing us, wanting to entrap us into places. I'm just being honest. I mean, we need the life of Jesus more than ever at work in our lives. Just let us be free free to love, free to become the men and women God wants us to be. 
And that's going to mean at times we're going to need to make adjustments, but a lot of times what it's going to mean is we're going to need to make sure we have other people who want to follow the Lord, who love the Lord in our lives. I was talking to a few people. I said, you know what? We need all kinds of different friends, but we definitely need our closest friends, if at all possible, to be people who love the Lord so that we can sharpen one another, be there for one another, strengthen one another, pray for one another, because we're not always going to be strong at the same time. And we have to have enough trust and enough vulnerability which is based out of that trust to be able to share our heart. And if we can't do that, a lot of times there's going to, things are going to get hard. Now look at this. Nicodemus, with, with his friend, they could do this. On their own, they, they were afraid. Together, they were able to do it. You, look, you know what? If you look at this closely, one of the things that's also clear to me is that I think about how God will use a relationship and how that relationship can become create synergy so it becomes, we become stronger than just who we would be individually. If you just took our strength, my strength and your strength, added it up, that would equal this. But if you put it together, it actually creates an additional layer of strength. There's something about it, about the value of having an another or others who love the Lord and who can challenge us when we need it. There is the danger, one of the most challenging things that I've watched over the years, and I've been watching this now for decades, uh, in people's lives and in my own life. There is a tendency when we fail, and it will show up in the life of Peter. It shows up in, in Judas as well. To want to isolate when we fail, or when it gets absolutely painful, or when we struggle and feel defeated, we pull away. But God wants us to move towards as painful and challenging it is, because it's there where his grace often comes. Sometimes just getting to the Lord's house, I know it's going to sound like, what? It's true. Sometimes just getting to the Lord's house is what will sustain us with a word. And the courage that it takes some people to come to his house or to hear his words when we're in a certain place, when it would be easy just to drift away, but the courage that God, God will honor that. And a lot of times what I've found is when we make that step, even when we don't feel like it, God sends something of life to us. It becomes a powerful dynamic for us. Third thing, finally, I'll put this up as well. We'll put this up. Notice it. How we finishes, finish matters more than how we start. That's good news. Doesn't mean how we start doesn't matter because starting, it's, it can affect how we finish. But I will say this, if we have to choose. No, look, Nicodemus starts in the, in, in the shadows. Won't even, he's afraid, he's ashamed. Stealth, quiet, set the appointment up. Don't let anybody know about it. Tentative, very careful, cautious. Doesn't want to be seen, doesn't want to be known, doesn't want anybody to know about it. He starts in the shadows. He ends up in the light. He declares himself. Judas starts out in the light. He ends up in the shadows. He ends up denying the Lord. So does Peter for that. They both, Peter, look, Judas and Peter, Peter both end up denying Jesus, just diff in different ways. And Peter probably, we know, because it says he went out by himself and started weeping bitter tears. Don't think for a moment he didn't have thoughts of suicide. The thing he prized the most, he had violated. His loyalty. His code. He's a broken man in shambles. But you know what the Bible says? Somehow, whether it was John or it was Peter, I don't know who found who, but there goes back to that other point. Peter, John finds Peter, Peter finds John. They end up together. John helps him get through that point, 
And eventually, God says, actually, what you saw as your worst moment has become the doorway to a new Peter that will be actually more profoundly capable of affecting people in ways for my kingdom than you would have ever imagined when you only knew how strong you were, but you did not know how much you really needed me. It was a big change. And it's a reminder, again, that God is in this business of helping us finish things. And that's very encouraging because we're going to have patches in life where it's not that easy all the time. But remember, if you can remember this, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a long-haul run. And the capacity to endure is prized over speed. Look at this verse. Last verse we'll look at. Look what it does. Look, what it, look how it rounds it all together. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a of an amazing cloud of witnesses, people who've gone before us and showed us how to live a life of faith. That's what it's saying. Let us lay aside every weight, every, every sin which so easily entraps us. And instead, let us run with endurance, with patience, this race that has been set before us. And whenever we need to be inspired about how to do it, let us look to Jesus, who is the originator, the author, the completer, the beginner, the finisher of our faith. When we plant ourselves in him, he who has run the race exactly how it needs to be run will help us run our race as well. For he showed us how to even go through a cross, and he, and he went through it. And even now he is defeated. He's despised the shame. He set down the very glory of the living God. The, so, as we head into this week, I'm going to ask you, us, to do a few things. How do we embrace this moment? How do we run this, this week well? I would like us to consider doing a few things. One of them is this. Consider during these next few days, in other words, let's just, if it's possible to not leave and then just show up around, I would like us to think about how can I honor you this week, Lord? I mean, really try to get my heart in a good place where some of the power of the living Christ can meet me in a way that is distinct and unusual because, partly, because so many people in the world are moving towards this same objective. And there's power there. Think about reading at different times of this week, divvying it up, John 13 through 21. On Friday, we have a good Friday service. We realize not everybody's going to make it. Even if everybody could, we, we wouldn't be able to do it. But we are having a live stream, and we realize that if you want to watch it, you can do that. Here's the thing. Whether you watch the service or can participate in it, we focus on the cross. On Friday, be intentional about thanking the Lord for what he did for us on the cross. Remember how much he suffered. Remember how much he understands pain. Remember how much God gave out of his love. He who was afar came near so that we who were afar could be brought near. It's all about what God does. He initiates the love. We just respond. And the love shows up in a cross. That's the bridge of life. And then think about, pray about who we're supposed to invite for Easter, when we're supposed to bring them. Step out. Let it be known we love him. And then lastly, I would say, let's say, Lord, help us to live this week well for you. Help us to watch our words, to watch what we're letting come into, who we, into us. Help us to like say, hey, maybe this week I'm really going to try to honor God with my conduct, with the things that I watch, with the way that I present myself, with the way to react to people. I'm going to really ask you, Lord, to help me honor you this week so that by the time I get to Easter, I know I'm not perfect, but I will be more intentional 
about moving into this moment, my heart will be ready and prepared. And I'll ask you to give me the grace to do this to the best of my abilities to honor you well, because you deserve it. And let's see what, what happens. Let me pray. We'll close out. And Lord, I thank you because you give us this great opportunity to follow you. Your love for us is relentless. Your words are true. Yes and amen, they are. And I ask that you would allow these things to penetrate into us in a good way. Help us to strengthen ourselves. I am asking that part of what will happen this week is we honor you. That as we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And, and again, I can't help. I just feel like, Lord, give us more of your resurrection power. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Raise us, Lord, up on the inner places. And strengthen our, the corridors of our heart in our wounded places. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. We thank you. We glory in you and what you've done for us. We thank you that at the end it's about you, not us. That just stirs our heart to want us to honor you better. Not an excuse, a cop-out. It's just saying, Lord, you're the one and we need you. In, in a world of independence, we give you our heart. And I ask that you would bless these closing minutes, even the song that, that's, that's connecting and our time of giving, that we honor you as a people together. Just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen.